because I know when anyone deploys in the military, the thing that they don't want to have to worry about is their family. And when they had me as a pediatrician, they didn't have to worry about at least their kids. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Retired Major General Dr. Sean Murphy most recently served on active duty as the Deputy Surgeon General of the Air Force. General Murphy is a distinguished graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy and obtained his medical degree from the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. Dr. Murphy is board certified in pediatrics, qualified in aerospace medicine, and has a master's degree in national security strategy from the National War College. He is commanded at the flight, squadron, and group levels in both the deployed and home station environment. General Murphy has also served at the Joint Combatant Command level. You can read his full bio at wardocspodcast.com. On this episode of Wardocs, we're privileged to welcome former Air Force Deputy Surgeon General, retired Major General, Dr. Sean Murphy. Sir, thanks for joining us. Oh, you bet. What a pleasure and what an honor to be joined with you all today and so many who have spoken on Wardocs before. General Murphy, tell us what led you to join Air Force Medicine and made you decide to make it a career? Yeah, so this is a little bit embarrassing because I've listened to some of the other podcasts and and the folks like uh, Talita Crossland and stuff that had been wanting to be docs since they were like three years old or something. So I was in Oxon Hill, Maryland. Uh, it came from just a bunch of Irish cops. So my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, grandfather, and my dad, all cops. My dad ended up, though, being a cop in the Air Force. So as I was finishing up high school, my parents had gotten divorced when I was in 10th grade, and my dad kept kind of pushing this Air Force Academy thought. And I had been pretty good at track and was going to get some scholarships to Syracuse or one of the Ivy League schools. And he kept pushing this and kept pushing it. And I'd throw it in the trash can and he'd pull it out. And the short of it is I just finally did the math. And the Air Force Academy at that time, because they were having a lot of attrition, had allowed people to go there three years, three years of college and walk away. So my whole plan was to go to the academy for three years and bolt and then go about my business. I had no idea about being a doc. So I got to the academy and as so many of us have been influenced by these individuals in various, you know, tiny little situations, there was a doctor there. He's a captain, Robington J.O. Woods. He had been an Air Force vet. And when the Army took over vet, he became a public health officer and ended up teaching at the academy. And he pulled a ton of us teaching biology. And that was my major, ended up being my major, and grabbed a bunch of us hoodlums by the scruff of our necks and basically said, hey, if you'd apply yourself, Murphy, they're opening this med school stuff to academy grant. 2% of the class can go. So the short of the why I ended up staying in the Air Force or coming in the Air Force was Captain Robington J.O. Woods, and then ending up qualifying and getting accepted into U-Shoes for medical school because I wasn't sure I was going to be able to get accepted anywhere else. So I went ahead and finished out my senior year and then owed 
12 years in the Air Force. So I got done and we were heading into the 90s when I was into that 12th year and I started doing the math and I had become a general pediatrician and the math was clear. First of all, I was loving what I was doing, taking care of Air Force families and their children because I know when anyone deploys in the military, the thing that they don't want to have to worry about is their family. And when they had me as a pediatrician, they didn't have to worry about at least their kids. And then I just kept getting great jobs, working with amazing people, and continued down the career of over 40 years. We just heard that you trained in pediatrics. And at one point, you became the pediatric consultant to the Air Force Surgeon General. We've heard in previous podcasts why the military has pediatricians, but as the consultant, what kind of things were your main concerns about pediatricians in the Air Force? I think the same can be asked sometimes on OBGYN, and I think people are very short-sighted. Air Force families have kids, right? And we are overseas and in places where we don't have health care. Quite honestly, we're in very restricted areas and small areas in the continental U.S. that has a hard time taking care of kids. So pediatrics is a requirement, especially for the Air Force and a lot of our small bases. And then as I talked to the pediatricians and the program directors, because I ran the ambulatory part of Keesler when it was a program down in Peds, I told them, you have to create a unique individual that is specifically built for the military family. And what that has to do with is think about the very tough areas in pediatrics, mental health, autism, developmental peds. And we have small bases that there are no developmental pediatrics, mental health, et cetera, around. So in being an Air Force pediatrician or a military pediatrician, it's so important to build those spoken hubs so that we can actually get families out to these smaller places through the you know exceptionally family member program. Because otherwise, the families are going to have to the active duty members are going to have to go to remote. And this is not getting better in the United States of America. So I can go on and on on the overseas and almost and also deployment med. When are they not kids in the middle of wars and deployment? Med? Just just I, I would love for someone to tell me when they're not there. And if you ever go to a trauma surgeon or vascular surgeon or whatever, they will be seeing kids and you want to have pediatricians. And so again, we need to develop the pediatrician. We need to develop those with the skills to assist and follow up on surgeries and, and other humanitarian disaster type relief. And I've seen it over and over again. So on that note, you've had several assignments where you were stationed in remote and overseas locations. Tell us some of the unique aspects that you experienced in providing overseas pediatric care to beneficiaries. So I'll start from the beginning. So I, I finished medical school in 1988 and uh, I knew I wanted to go overseas with a family. I've always wanted to. And so we uh, ended up in Yokota, Japan. So a hospital. There were two pediatricians, uh, myself and a colonel. And so for three years there, it was every other night call. And we'd get uh, some relief from family practice, et cetera. But coming out of the Keesler program, it still was easier than what was going on in residency and some of our call schedules there. So in getting out to those small bases and taking care of those families, you are just integral to that whole mission set and integral to the rest of the staff and what was going on. 
I'd say that, you know, we saw the OBGYN docs as much as we saw our families in those first assignments. And back in 88, we had the medical officers of the day that actually, thank goodness, we do not do anymore. And so I was covering the emergency rooms also on the schedules with all the other physicians. Matter of fact, so coming in and the first night call had an adolescent suicide who had jumped from a, one of the towers in Dakota, had a SIDS uh, baby, so sitting with a mom whose uh, infant just died. And coming out of that PEDS residency, I was well prepared for all of those cases. What I wasn't prepared for were some of the adults. So it wasn't my first MOD, but there was an elderly lady. We had a lot of retirees uh, in the Yakota area that came in with wheezing. And as a pediatrician, it was beaten into us. You know, something comes in and wheezes, you give them a little epi and it helps all the time. Well, I wouldn't give epi <laughs> to a 70-year-old wheezer who had COPD, et cetera. So it is really, really important as we had our internal medicine, close colleagues, as I was giving that call and he was like, just sit there, I'll be there in 60 seconds because we all lived on base. And uh, she did fine, by the way. But uh, I learned a lot doing MODs and really understanding every single position and that big team teaming that needed to happen in those, those hospitals. I went from Yakota to a clinic because uh, you can imagine every other night for three years, you need some clinic setting and uh, went to Germany. And so that was wonderful. And I would see every kid that walked in that building. It was myself and a nurse practitioner. And so we were covering down on about three or 4,000 kids. And But no call and everything. I still thought life was grand. And I did take admission privileges down in the 97th, down at Frankfurt in the Army Hospital. And in both those settings, always was working with the other services. And that was amazing with teaching through all of the Pacific and all of the European theater doing the pediatric acute life support, neonatal acute life support, and understanding how good all my colleagues were from every service. And again, how could I walk away from those great jobs and great people as a pediatrician? It was just amazing work. So that experience really must have prepared you for even more austere environments such as deployment. Do you have any memorable clinical experiences from one of your overseas deployments? Yeah, so I've only deployed, you know, into a combat theater once, and that was in 2005, and it was to Kuwait. So I was a commander and running the contingency air staging facility. So we were moving, moving casualties out of Iraq and Afghanistan during that time. So it was the time that Iraq was voting, if you kind of remember back in the news and the Purple Fingers. And it was kind of a very exciting time because we had an international base, both Koreans and the Japanese with the C-130s, cargo transports, moving a lot in and out of Iraq, some in and out of Afghanistan, but mostly doing the Iraq relief effort. And then we were moving casualties through that cassette back to Longstool. So uh, uh, actually, the deputy surgeon, uh, Major General J.J. DeGhost now for the Air Force, who uh, came in after me was the head of the contingency staging facility. And it, again, what a small world. And also JJ DeCose was with me at Keesler as I went back and taught at Keesler after Ryan mine. That's another amazingly fun thing about the military. 
and you never want to leave a, you know, a bad bridge in anyone you ever work with because you do not know when you're going to work with them again and in what kind of settings. So you talk about being a small world. The same thing happened not only with Air Force members, but with other services. So again, it does prepare you as you give assistance in those deployed settings. I think what helped as much in that world was some of the military schooling that I got and also the combatant command, the COCOM work, both from the Southern Command and Pacific and understanding how deployments work, how logistics flows, how the Army, Navy, et cetera, works, because it's really one big happy family, quite honestly, downrange. I did get to do some movement and transports and things in, in 130s and also heading over Afghanistan. We're going into uh, Kurdistan as, as we had a little base there for some things. And I'll tell you, with 130s being able to get only at such an altitude over these uh, mountain, and we're in our night vision goggles and kind of st staying high and keeping ourselves out of trouble. And I'm looking down at incredible altitude, seeing little campfires and stuff of the Taliban, et cetera. Back then, I just thought, how, how are we ever going to beat up? a force that can live up in these mountains at this altitude and little campfires like forever and ever and ever. So as we look back, I was like, we got to think about that as a military, no matter where we go and what we're trying to do and think about that natural culture and those individuals that are living in their own country and what really is or is not possible from an external and at that time, I knew I knew we were in a bit of trouble in Afghanistan. How does the Air Force medical mission differ from the mission of the other military services? People often say, why aren't we all purple? Why don't we just have one service, a medical service that supports all the four services now, right, with the addition of Space Force? And that doesn't make a lick of sense. Each service is specifically built and with their Title 10 responsibility has a specific mission set. And they are very different. And it takes years to understand the cultures, the mission set, the requirements, and fill those requirements. So from the Air Force perspective, I was blessed in around 2000, 99 and 2000, when I became the PEDS consultant and going to D.C. and working with General Carlton and an amazing staff. General Carlton was a was our uh, surgeon general then. It was a trauma surgeon. And he was still taking trauma call as a two-star general out of Wilford Hall as he came up to D.C. And so he was full-on readiness trauma guy. So that is when we really built and sustained the critical care in the air teams, a flying ICU, and building those teams in a very standard manner and also building our expeditionary medical packages. They had to be small. They had to be packaged and fit on planes to go where we went. And it was all weight cubed. And he also was a big proponent of making sure that anyone, so not just docs, not just surgeons, but anyone that was going downrange was ready and prepared. So at that time, we had built all those different packages. We had also built all the requirements, starting with surgeons, because they're kind of the easiest. 
What's the caseload that you need to keep yourself current for downrange activity? Did the same for peas, did the same for logistics. And we had critical skills requirements that back in 2099, you had to have as a physician, nurse, medical tech, bio officer, doesn't matter. And so we would not put a surgeon where they didn't have enough caseload. And that's where back in 2000 is when we got embedded into a lot of places, the John Hopkins, and then we would rotate teams and surgeons through those areas. So it was an amazing time as a lieutenant colonel pediatrician to understand how that all worked. And that's also when we built what we call the primary care optimization, you know, how do you get docs doing doc things and build efficient clinics in primary care and in specialty care so that docs could be docs and nurses could be nurses and med techs could be med techs and everybody working to the top of their skill. It was also a big time that we really followed checklists and it, so it really brought me into the patient safety realm in working in the Air Force Medical Operations Agency and our quality division. So became a crazy zealot and advocate for safety. And so again, it's amazing as you go through your career, what you get exposed to. In addition to pediatrics, you're also qualified in aerospace medicine. What does that role entail in the Air Force? And do you have any good experiences or stories from that? I am more of a pediatrician than a flight doc. But when you refer to pilots, I, I don't know many of them that aren't just big kids or adolescents at heart. So as a pediatrician, it's a great background to be a flight surgeon. So I really became a flight surgeon right after medical school, but I didn't get to actually practice that till I was a commander out at Tyndall. I had assisted in clinics and things along the way. But aerospace medicine, what it really is, is that family doc for the flyers and their families. And the key and essential part of that is that you're part of that unit. You are integrated in that unit. And many of the other services understand what I mean. But when you, you know, go to war with them, you fly with them, you, you name it, you, you are doing everything with them, including Friday night parties. And when I say that, that's when you really find out about people because maybe alcohol, you know, allows people to maybe talk about things they wouldn't talk about if they weren't a little looser in their psychology or their mindset. And so that's where you really got to know people incredibly well. The families were participating in a lot of the parties and things that you had. So you really got to know each of those individuals and your job and mission set is to keep them flying. So it was a blast. So I had time in the backseat of an F-15, got a lot of time in C-130s and C-17s over Hawaii, over volcanoes, night vision work. And it, it's again, how can you walk away from a career that's so diverse and allows you to do things that nobody gets to do? I got to fly in the U-2. I got full astronaut suit. I got the full you know, gamut of flying and basically being on the edge of space. Pediatricians don't get to do this. Docs don't get to do this kind of stuff. You spent some time in the medical policymaking arena in the Pentagon Tell us your most memorable story from the Pentagon working with senior military and governmental leaders. Yeah, I, I think I'll maybe tell a few stories because I hate to say I spent more than one assignment in the Pentagon. I've had three different assignments and 
I so many people told me, oh, you're just pushing papers from desk to desk and there's nothing that you really can get done there. And I absolutely disagree. So uh, the first time I was there in 99 through about 2003, again, getting to work with General Carlton, there was amazing things that happened and that we were able to get done through policy. And one of the largest one and, and most important that is still alive today and important is the TRICARE for Life. So, you know, those veterans that deserved and were told back in 65 and we had quotes and recordings and things that they deserved healthcare for life, we were able with General Carlton lead blocking and a surplus in funds, which was kind of unheard of from Congress and a ton of work and actually fighting through, not, not with the TRICARE management activity at that time, were able to get the legislation done that brought TRICARE for life in. And what we had initially driven that, and Don Taylor, Colonel Don Taylor, a medical service corps officer, was really the lead. And I can't tell you how many times he got kicked in the teeth and told to, you know, go back to his cubbyhole and, and try again. But coming back and learning how to repackage things and learning how to work with Congress and how to get the professional staffers on your side etc. We are able to get that legislation through that year and which many of us are continuing and will be enjoying. It was called Operation Restore Trust and really had a lot of the World War II vets etc. As, as part of that. So I learned that anything is possible if you keep at it and that you don't stay down once knocked down and you can repackage thing when it's right. And we knew the TRICARE for life was right. So I wouldn't fear going to staff and I wouldn't get, get the attitude that I can't create changes or make things because you can. I can remember actually when I was up there and very new and General Carlton was at, at the head of one of those long wooden tables and I was kind of a back row sitter and he was getting fed a bunch of BS on Alta, the new medical record and what it was doing at that time. And I knew because I was the PEDS consultant and been talking to a bunch of people and I practiced PEDS all the way up to the day I left as the deputy surgeon general. So I could know what was going on you know, in the clinic and he was being fed a bunch of garbage. And to the point that they were gonna press with Ulta when it was not ready. It wasn't that it was bad, it was not ready for prime time. And so I could not help myself. And I got up on my knees. I am not joking. From the back seats, I went, got on my knees next to him. And I said, please, I am begging you in a praying stance. You have got to go down to Langley and look at this before you check off that it can press. So the short story of that is he went to Langley. He saw that it wasn't ready for prime time. He convinced the other surgeon generals and they put a six month delay because it had a lot of things to fix. So again, there is so much you can do in a staff position. So you're not helping one patient at a time or one other physician at a time or one medic at a time, but you're helping the whole system. So you attended the Air War College and then the National War College, and that's a lot of war college for a physician. <laughs> How did that help you in your career? 
So, so, so let me start at the beginning, and it was SOS, Squadron Officer School. So no doc did Squadron Officer School. So I had another friend in residency as captain, and we decided we're going to do this remote learning in Squadron's Officer School. So this is a, you know, maybe four to six months remote learning, easy thing. So it took me four years to get done with it. I had the most extensions ever granted from military, Air Force military uh, professional education to get that done. So then I did uh, the Air Command and Staff by correspondence, and I did Air War College by correspondence. I didn't do that in residence. And so after I had gotten done with the time with General Carleton, he had a lot of influence and a lot of others. I had a good record that I got to go to National War College. And I, I was amazed. And it actually allowed my son also to graduate high school. So, so many things come together in a positive manner for an Air Force family and an Air Force member. So National War College was just one of the best years of my life. Not only did it have the other services and again, remember, this is the line, not medics, but the other services, but it had all the other interagencies. So FBI, USAID, State Department, Department of Energy, geo mapping, you name it, uh, they were there along with all the international students. So I got a master's in national security strategy as a pediatrician. I think the president, a few back in, in Chile, Michelle Bachelet might be the only other pediatrician with a degree or something like that. But it was incredibly useful in my future. So one, I made all the connections from the other services and from the inner agencies. I learned about the other services and the inner agencies and the other international students. And my area of specialty was uh, Central America and South America. So we'll come back to that. And then Colonel Rhonda Cornum, uh, Army doc, was ended up being the president of our class. And Corey Cornum, uh, Air Force doc, uh, also became a GO, as Rhonda did, was the head of sports. So we had a big medical presence. And so we brought as much as we gained from National War College. I actually wrote a paper called Transformation of the Air Force Medical Service, in which it really outlined what has been happening with the integration of what was then TRICARE Management Activity, the services, and I included the veterans in it because we really should have one huge federal system and would really help getting currency with those over 65 for a lot of the docs, nurses, med techs, et cetera, and that paper actually won the paper of the year at National War College. So you think that medics don't, don't matter, they do. And so that study on South America, I think, was a significant contributor of my getting the job as the Southcom Surgeon General, and then being incredibly familiar, not only with the area, but a lot of the leaders as we took a, a trip at the end of the year all through South America. You've had uh, just a plethora of assignments. What would you say was your most challenging assignment? And what principles helped you succeed during that time? That was Fairchild. So I had gone back and taught at the pediatric residency at Keesler. And all I ever wanted to be was a program director or chairman of a pediatrics department. So the chief doc at Keesler 
a man by the name of Colonel Craig Hinman, a urologist, by the way, was going up to command Fairchild. And he said, Sean, if you really want to be a chairman, then you need to come up and get out to the field and be a chief doc. So I went up to Fairchild as the chief doc. And about very soon after I got there, they started the medical squadrons. And so then I also was selected to be the squadron commander. So I was the squadron commander. I was the chief doc. I was also still doing pediatrics and we were an ambulatory surgery clinic. So some of our listeners may not know where Fairchild Air Force Base is. Can you elaborate on that for them? So Fairchild is up in Washington state on the Eastern side, right outside of Spokane. And as those from the Western side of the state, Seattle, they call it the can. It is the high desert. It is one winter. It started snowing in October and didn't stop till May. So with all of that compounding, I think that it wasn't probably the best time with my family either because I was just so daggum busy. Matter of fact, I had been asked to come and be the pediatric consultant, and I didn't want anything to do with any more administration. I was like, no, I don't want to go to D.C. And uh, two or three months later, my wife said, get me out of here. (laughs) I called back to D.C. with my tail between my legs and said, is that job still open? (laughs) And that's when I ended up going to D.C. So the reason that it was so challenging, though, is that time management I also had a great boss and I learned a ton about strategic thinking and how to build a strategy for an organization that involved everybody in the organization. I was short-sighted a little bit on the physician side. I, I was always a big team player, but I got my horizons extended there by this great doc who had uh, close to 30 years in the Air Force. And so I think that's really where I cut my teeth on the administrative part and learning it, what it was to be a commander, you know, and having those authorities to throw somebody in jail, to throw somebody out of the Air Force, and also how to recover those airmen that it's not a one-mistake Air Force and that those that needed a little rehab, none of us have been perfect through some of our adolescence. I learned all of that in Fairchild, but I can't tell you that it was easy. So you've gone from cadet to deputy surgeon general of the Air Force, what accomplishment in your career are you most proud of? I have never been prouder than when I was in Yokota, Japan, and so well prepared as that pediatrician out of residency. We had an infant that had been in a Japanese hospital for months and had a diaphragmatic hernia, had never been off the ventilator, and the parents wanted to get back to the United States. We were trying to get them back to Eastler. And so we didn't have exactly critical care in the air teams as we do today. So I ended up setting up a team with myself and a nurse, no respiratory therapist, nothing else, because we only had the bird ventilator. And you can do some research on the bird ventilator. You don't even plug it in. It's, it's, it's all pressure generated. But I knew how to take that thing apart and put it together in my sleep because we had to learn that in our, our residency because we knew we were going to get on these flights. And we took that kid from Yokota, Japan to Kiesler and dropped them off as healthy as they were. And so we had to go down to that Japanese facility. We just gave them the same meds. We didn't even know all the names of them through the whole uh, trip that they had, kept them on the ventilator settings. And so as we were flying in a 141, which no longer flies anymore, and going 
over Hawaii that kid coded. So I had called all the intensive care, the neonatal units along the way and told them that I was transporting this baby, anything could happen. So they called down to Tripler and we ended up overnighting there. They were so packed there that they had brought in a nurse to assist. That's the kind of great work that we had. So then got a night's sleep and got the baby into San Diego and then to Keesler. So that is one of those says that I know uh, that family was always grateful uh, for what we were able to do. I think from another perspective, I'm just going to kind of label it patient safety. You know, I just believe we should not be harming patients as medics. And so I've been incredibly passionate about that. And the Air Force has allowed me to lead that effort. We call it trusted care in, you know, getting to zero harm. So when we got our surgical checklist set, when I was the commander at the Air Force Medical Operations Agency, so we could send those out Every OR had to follow those. We drove wrong site surgeries down to zero. We drove patient harm events decreasing 50% a year, then 40% uh, down to just teens from in the 80s and 90s on negative events. I think those are the things that I'm as proud as anything. And the rest of the whole team of the Air Force Medical Service and all those other medics that have helped along the way. Every month, medical treatment facilities, when I was the deputy, could send me tr what I called trusted care heroes. Those were any medic of any flavor, logistics, pharmacy, biomed, nurses, techs, a letter on a hero. I wrote every one of them back, and we were getting 30 to 50 a month. To me, that's 30 to 50 saves on harm a month. That's no question what I'm most proud of. What was the best leadership advice that you've ever received in your career? I think it's really just to support those that you're leading. It's really a servant leadership mentality. I think the other thing is when I was in my younger years and stuff, you wanted to be perfect, the best, and it, it didn't have a lot of vulnerabilities and transparency. And I think that's the exact opposite what a good leader does in this day and age. I think really understanding on being transparent, being vulnerable to your people and letting them know it's okay not to be perfect because no one is perfect and no one will ever be perfect. I think that it really is a great leadership lesson. And it's what we used in trusted care because again, there's going to be a harm event. And so we know nobody did something purposely to make that happen. And the question is, how are we going to recover? What are we going to do to prevent this from ever happening to someone else? And so we don't hide from the event. We get the event, we learn from it, and you can only do that in that transparent, vulnerable manner. If you had a multi-million dollar budget to study and improve one aspect of military medical care, what would you study and hope to improve? I really believe that we should have a federal system of healthcare. We all pay taxes. The taxes go to the military, go to the Veterans Administration, and a significant amount of that goes to pay for the medical aspect. I know we're struggling to pull together the three services in a joint manner and the Defense Health Agency into that healthcare system, but I would somehow spend the money to try to buy down some of that leverage to integrate also with the VA. Again, this is going to be incredibly bureaucratic, incredibly challenging, but I think that in the end, 
that would be the best system, both for the patient and for the military and for those that need those currency cases. If we could somehow pull that together, that's where I would throw my money. What is one thing you would want our audience to know about military medicine that they may not be aware of? I think a lot of people don't understand how good military medicine is, and, and maybe war docs will help a little bit. But from the almost the beginning of time between infectious disease and Walter Reed and Gorgas and, and you name it, military medicine has been bringing innovation, vaccines, therapeutics, and great processes, clamps, procedures to the civilian sector. And I think that there is no question that we could be the best healthcare system there is out there. And I think as we work towards this being more joint and integrated, and if we pull the VA in there, I think though from the military, we have an amazing healthcare system with a great patient safety outcomes. And that there's great medics from medical technicians through nurses, all the other ancillary services and physicians in the military. Significant number, if not the majority of physicians are all on scholarships that they competed for. So you're already getting a high level of physician that's coming in. And many of the nurses and other individuals are also on different kinds of scholarships. So you get a high level of people into the military who care like crazy about the patients. And I just think that often people don't understand how good military medicine is. So we always like to wrap our sessions up with kind of a legacy question. And so we know that you have children and eventually grandchildren, and you may have grandchildren now or great grandchildren down the line. hundred years from now, what would you like to tell them on this podcast, they're listening 100 years from now about your career in military medicine. I think it's kind of simple. I just would want them to know that I just wanted to be a great Irish pediatrician. I, I wanted to take care of my patients and the families in a way that they felt I was part of the family and a trusted part in everything that that family did and in every decision that we made as a medical family, you know, team. And the same kind of thoughts uh, with all of my peers. I played 20 years of rugby. And, and as if anybody knows anything about rugby, you know, you spend an hour or so beating the tar out of each other. And then you go to the bar, you usually have a party, you drink and you go like, how did you put that move on me? Or, you know, something like, like that. And I really think that what I would really like people to remember is, you know, Sean Murphy was a, a great doc, a great partner, a great trusted individual that I'd always want to buy him a pint of beer at the pub. So if we could remember that, maybe that's what I'll put on my tombstone. I, I hope I got that pint of beer at the pub. Then I would consider it a good life. Well, sir, we'll toast to that. We've really enjoyed the privilege to speak with Major General Sean Murphy on War Docs. Sean, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thanks for your service and best wishes in retirement. You bet. Thanks for what you all are doing. 
Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardox on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.